Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Tonight, we're holding a policy and a pint discussion about whether the jig is up for the gig economy in California. Governor Gavin Newsom just signed California's Assembly Bill 5, or AB 5 for short, into law, and it's one of the most contentious bills of the year that we'll probably still be talking about and voting on during election year 2020. AB 5, which kicks in on January 1st, changes the test used to determine whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor. The legislation affects at least 1 million workers in California, ranging from ride-hailing drivers and construction workers to franchise owners and freelance writers and artists. Proponents of AB 5 say the new bill gives gig economy workers more access to basic workplace protections, like a minimum wage and unemployment insurance. People against AB 5 say it will prevent those workers from having the full flexibility and control they want over their schedule. It will make running businesses in California even more expensive, and those additional costs will be passed on to us customers. Will AB5 determine the future of the gig economy? And what is the future of work, the workplace, and workers' rights going forward? Listen in as we break down the AB5 bill, explain it in plain English, and talk about how it may affect us all as workers, business owners, consumers, and voters. Hi, everyone. Welcome to California Groundbreakers. We're a civic engagement organization focused on innovators doing interesting things around the state of California. What's new, what's innovative, what's groundbreaking. My name is Vanessa Richardson, I'm the executive director. Uh, we're holding events focused on, like I said, uh, innovative topics, people, and things in California. We hold them at interesting fun spaces like tonight at Fitzsim Studios here in Sacramento. Conversations over pints of beer, glasses of wine, zero proof cocktails about uh, what's going on here and how it affects us as taxpayers, voters, and residents. This event is one of a series we call Policy in a Pint, and that's when we translate uh, what's going into the capital, what's coming out of the capital, from policy wonkiness into plain English, and how it affects you and me, again, as, as voters, taxpayers, and residents. This one is an especially relevant Policy in a Pint because we're, we're focusing on is called Assembly Bill 5, and it is a big deal. It's a little complicated. I was just mentioning that uh, I really researched this, and it has a, some moving parts to keep track of, but it is a big deal because it impacts a lot of people in California. It's something that, like, as often happens with California uh, legislation, other states are taking a look at and may possibly follow, and it's also a bill that we may have to cast a vote on next year in election year 2020. So I'm just gonna give a quick summary so we can start it off uh, with a little uh, primer. Assembly Bill 5, which we'll call AB 5 for short, was passed by the legislature and signed by Governor Newsom earlier this fall, and it officially kicks in on January 1st. What it does is it changes the test uh, I'm going to break it down. It changes the test used to determine whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor. And it's intended to give independent co contractors the rights, benefits, and protections currently only available to employees, like, for example, a minimum wage. Now, those against AB5 say it will prevent independent contractors from having flexibility and control over their schedules, 
It makes running businesses in California more expensive, and that could translate into higher prices for us Californians to pay. I think there's been a lot of attention on uh, AB5 and how it can affect a Lyft and Uber drivers, rideshare drivers, but it also impacts a whole bunch of other people, truck drivers, construction workers, cleaners, nail salon workers, physical therapists, franchise business owners, and freelance writers, which that is my day job. So I personally take an interest in what's going on with AB5 because I'm reading articles now about how, uh, for example, publishing companies aren't hiring California-based freelance writers for fear of getting sued. One of our audio people said that he does uh, translation work uh, for extra money, and the translation company said, as of December 1st, they're not hiring uh, translators in California. Um, and, uh, and like I said, voters should be listing up on this too because uh, we may have a ballot measure about it next year. Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash are three companies that have pledged $90 million, they say, to pass a ballot initiative in California that, could, that will officially exempt them from this bill. So we'll see how far that goes. It may be negotiated, it may be go on the ballot, but obviously it's something that a lot of people and not just gig workers uh, should understand. Regardless of how you feel about AB5, it seems like it's the next phase in a long ongoing debate about whether work in the workplace in America are becoming too unstable and insecure. When I was reading up on this, I just saw a couple of articles about how full-time workers at big tech companies like Google and I think Facebook, are considering joining or creating their own union. And today I read that workers at one of my former employers, Hearst Magazines, that's a big publisher of magazines like Cosmopolitan, Esquire, Town & Country, they're planning to start a union. So tonight we're going to ask our great panelists here, how is AB5 going to affect the workplace in California, maybe even other states? How it will affect the gig economy that more and more of us are, are working in? And basically, what is the future of work? workers' rights, and the workplace for us going forward. Before I, before I have the panelists introduce themselves, I want to give a special thanks to a few people who made this event possible. Um, Marco and Caitlin, owners of Fitsum Studios that hosted us, thank you so much. Uh, it's always great to have our events here and I always appreciate your help. And also our volunteer extraordinaire, Rodrigo Ramirez, who is manning the bar there. You are a rock solid volunteer. Thank you again for your help. Uh, also to our uh, audio people back there, Nate Graham and Caleb Clark of Kickstart Audio for recording the programs and making us sound good. Thank you very much. Panelists, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. And of course, to you audience for taking time out of your schedule as well. So like I mentioned, I'm going to have the panelists introduce themselves. And so I'm going to start with the gentleman on my left, and we're going to go around. Besides your name and your current role in organization, I always like to throw in a personal question there that's tied into the topic that we're going to talk about. So personal note about you, I want you to describe the most interesting gig job you've had since you started working, whether it was mowing lawns, uh, doing rideshare. Uh, what was the most interesting gig job you've ever had and what made it interesting? So I'm going to start with you on my left. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Vanessa. Kaim Morton with the Sacramento Metro Chamber. Uh, I'm the Vice President for Public Policy and Economic Development. Um, so in terms of the, you know, the job, uh, I would probably say, you know, like campaign work, although I've done, you know, it's like, I know. Um, but, you know, I've 
I've been a limo driver. I've worked in landscaping. Uh, I've done security before, but uh, I would probably say, you know, working in politics and you know, and having the ability to sell my services and contract out and you know and help folks. So, so working in politics is is pretty much a gig job. Yeah, it you know it can be. There's a lot of different areas to cover. Um, whether you are a speechwriter, whether or not you're running a campaign for someone, um, whether or not you are helping them with their finances and fundraising. So. Thank you. Next up. Uh, my name is Kimberly Lucia, and in case you can't tell by the legal pad on my lap, I'm the lawyer in the room. Um, I am an employment attorney at a local law firm, Bhutan Jones, uh, where I represent employers. I provide advice and counseling and represent them in litigation. Um, my, my most interesting gig job, I've been an employee my entire life, even when I babysat at a bowling alley. Um, but I guess I'd have to say as a babysitter. I, that's the, and that was when I was 14 or 15 years old. So since then, I've always worked as an employee. So I don't really have, a, never had a gig job. So you, you've only been an independent contractor as a babysitter, and then ever since it's been full-time employee. Full-time employee from Burger King on. All right. Thanks, Kim. Next up. I'm Anthony Giannotti. I'm owner of Bottle and Barlow, Anthony's Barbershop, and Victory Crown Barber Company. Uh, I spent my entire adult life in gig economy, to be totally honest. Uh, but probably my most interesting would be touring musician. I should mention Anthony's a pro because he's been on a panel before about style in Sacramento. And he was so good, we invited him back. So thanks again, Anthony. And last but not least... Yeah, my name is Jeff Perry, and I've been a gig worker essentially for almost the last four years, um, mainly Uber and Lyft. I've done Amazon Flex and a few other app-based um, work, and um, yeah, I have a good perspective as somebody who's actually been there and relied on it as full-time employment, um, as well as supplemental employment. Um, and um, my most interesting, I think, uh, is the rideshare driver experience itself not necessarily I wouldn't say the companies are interesting but um, the job itself is is um, very interesting and and actually can be a fun experience that's great so it's good to have this assortment of employment experience here so we get all perspectives uh, and thank you again so my first question is for you uh, Kimberly I wanted you to give us a little more uh, a little more of the primer that I had started with this uh, this bill um, because it seems like it started with a court ruling, I guess what we call the Dynamex court ruling. And so I wanted you to tell us about that Dynamex court ruling, why it was significant, and if it led to AB5, the Assembly Bill 5, um, what, what's in that Assembly Bill that you know, we should know about as employees, independent contractors, and employers? So yeah, just in a nutshell. <laughs> so that's a big question. So the first thing I'll tell you is uh, something I learned when I started reading about this case is it's actually called Dynamics, um, not Dynamics. So, but I, I say both, and you'll hear both throughout this conversation. Um, Dynamics was a what we call a 
putative class action. It was a case brought by truckers wanting to tell, say basically that they had been misclassified by Dynamics as independent contractors. And the case went along as these cases generally do, and I won't get too lawyer nerd on you, um, but they were looking at a group of truckers and saying, are you independent contractors or are you employees? And the court, lower courts had certified a class of, of truckers that included truck drivers who were individuals who did not own their own companies and who did not um, drive for more than one company. So they kind of narrowly had these group of, of independent individuals. So when the case got to the California Supreme Court on the ho-hum question that the courts look at all the time, the, the California Supreme Court said, well, wait a minute, we're not gonna look at this old test called the Borello test. It was a multi-factor, I call it control plus test, about eight or so factors that defined when someone was an independent contractor. You know, different factors weighed differently depending on the circumstance. The California Supreme Court said, no, we're gonna, we're gonna implement the ABC test. Uh, which is the three-factor test, um, that the worker be free from control in contract and in fact, um, that the worker be outside of the hiring business's usual course of business, and that the worker be is in a separately established business, kind of invest in their own tools and equipment and set themselves up, license themselves, form a corporate entity. The, the, the test itself is kind of a combination of what used to be the Borello test, whittled down to three factors, and if you fail any one, you lose as an, as an independent contractor, you're an employee. The, the, what happened was this decision overturned roughly 30 years of precedent that employers and companies in this state and independent contractors in this state have worked under for years, which is if we somehow balanced all these multiple factors of the Borello test, we could figure out whether someone was an independent contractor or an employee. The California Supreme Court looked around um, in response to a lot of briefing and said, well, 21 states or so have this ABC test. Uh, and it's much more clear, and it's easy to apply. And so we're gonna take all this squishiness and uncertainty out of this multi-factor test, and we're gonna give you a three-factor test that's really super clear. Problem is, it's not super clear, um, because of, in particular, the B factor, the usual course of business. What is my usual course of business? And I don't wanna go too much into it, because I don't wanna take all the time, but the example I always like to give is, I'm, I'm at a law firm. My law firm has a number of practice areas, healthcare, employment, tax, et cetera. Is my usual course of business practicing law, or is it practicing healthcare, employment, tax, et cetera, so I can have an independent contractor family attorney? So we're gonna have these conversations, the attempt at clarity, I think, was, was a problem because of that B factor. A and C are there. B was there, but it was one factor. It wasn't the factor. Um, and so what happened after that, just to truncate it, is the legislature stepped in and said, well, we're gonna, we're gonna clarify this, and we're gonna, we're gonna codify it, we're gonna make it law. Because the California Supreme Court decision only applied to a very narrow set of laws that are in wage orders 
legal nerd. I'm not going to get too much into it. But what, the, what they did was the legislature said, we want to make this law. We want to make this ABTC test the law across the board. We want to apply it to unemployment insurance, all wage and hour laws, all the labor code laws, and workers' compensation. So that's what AB5 does. AB5 takes that ABC test decided by the court and makes it the law going forward. That makes sense. I, <laughs> I don't want to, go ahead. All right, no, that's, that's, that's good, because I, I think that's a good summary. And, um, and we have more, we're going to go more into detail that obviously, but it's good to get a, uh, the baseline. And the next question I had was for a business owner, um, Anthony, because the reason I asked you uh, here also is because you were uh, interviewed in the press I read up about you after the Dynamics ruling and how that affected Bottle and Barlow in particular. And so I thought it would be interesting to get your take as a business owner how that ruling immediately impacted your business and what, ha what has happened since then um, between that ruling and you know maybe AB5, will that change again? So just since that ruling, how, how did that impact your business? Um. Well, it, it really wasn't very good. <laughs> uh, most everybody in the hair industry, Bottle and Barlow is a bar and a barbershop, so most everybody in the hair industry in, kind of enjoyed how things worked because we were kind of on our own and we could work as much or as little as we wanted within, you know, I don't want to say rules, but like guidelines to actually be successful in the industry. Um, so when... When that came down, I mean, there was no way my my other shop, Anthony's Barbershop, I was able to restructure it as a different company because I don't I don't actually physically cut hair there, so I was able to restructure it and kind of keep it fairly the same. But with Bottle and Barlow, really the only way around it for my industry was to go completely employee based, which is not super common in hair and not very well liked. So I lost my entire staff because it's not what they signed up for. So it took a, a huge impact. I went from you know, eight chairs functioning seven days a week to me. Um, since then, it's actually been been very positive. I've I've learned a lot <laughs> about being a business owner. I was we were joking earlier about having to have a law degree to be a business owner now, and I, I don't have a law degree, but I do have three lawyers. Um, <laughs> How many did you have before? I had zero. <laughs> So uh, it, it was a great opportunity for me to, to step up my business knowledge, to really take the bull by the horns and, you know, to practice what I preach, you know, taking control of your destiny, right? That's what we do as business owners. That's why we work for ourselves is to, to be on our own. So I've been able to, to grow. October was the first full month that I operated uh, with the new staff. And so I've just barely passed a year of the new structure. And I was able to, from October to October, grow the business 35%, which is quite a bit in my world, especially since pretty much all the guys that left opened their own shops. So now I'm competing against significantly more shops and all people that I have personally trained. <laughs> kind of knew my tricks. Um, but I've been able to grow it and continue to grow and have a, have a solid team. And, you know, I've, I've definitely, uh, definitely learned. And now the AB5 was signed and goes into effect, does that change anything else or are you exempt? Because we're going to talk about exemptions a little later. I have a question for you about that, but does I, that impact So, you? Uh, beauty, beauty industry, they're 
actually a little bit vague on what that means in it. Like she said, it, it kind of made it more complicated. Uh, we are exempt. But the, what I, I mean, who knows what's going to happen, right? It's going to continue to be litigated. It's going to continue. We're going to pass more legislature on it. it. I mean, we're far from done. So as where I sit with my two businesses now, well, three businesses, um, no matter what happens, I'm, I'm good. I kind of wanted to, I worked with, that's why I have three lawyers now as I worked with several lawyers to figure out the safest structure for me long-term because it's hard enough to be a business owner. And then that's why we're joking about having a law degree. Like I got to run a business. I got to watch the legislature. And now I got to watch judicial decisions. Like, are you kidding? When am I ever going to sleep? Uh, so I wanted the safest structure to continue to grow my businesses and my brand moving forward. Jeff, I wanted to ask you too. I mean, you had mentioned you are you're a gig economy uh, worker. I thought it was also interesting that you are uh, also I, I don't know if the official term is, but a maybe an organizer or, or a very vocal participant in this organization called Gig Workers Rising. And I guess last week you went to a few houses uh, in the Bay Area in LA, the Gig Workers Rising uh, for. And these houses are owned by people who either were big investors or executives at Uber. And they were about that day. They were about to cash. They could cash in stock options, right, for uh, for for their stock because now Uber is publicly traded. So obviously, this is something that you you're taking a big role in in terms of how AB5 affects gig workers and and workers' rights. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, why you support AB5? How you see how you see it changing things for you and fellow gig workers in California. Yeah, so um, I have been a business owner before, um, and so I understand what that looks like. And so when I went to, um, my business was a victim of divorce, but um, in my, you know, rest my restart, uh, you know, I found this, I'd used Uber and talked to these drivers and they really loved the job, right? It was very positive vibe coming from people in that industry and I said I'm going to try this out and see what what happens this is four years ago and and it was actually a great experience I had a good time I made great money um, for what it was you know and um, <clears throat> and then increased my driving and and stuff and then um, you know these with anything problems pop up right and as a business owner you want to be able to solve those problems right you need to be able to solve those problems you know, um, so that you're not facing the same thing day over day, right? And so us as business owners, drivers, we went to the companies and tried to negotiate with the companies. We alerted the companies. These are the issues we're facing as drivers. And they would do nothing. They would do nothing. They would do nothing. And then they ousted Kalanick, right? Kalanick uh, and brought in Dara, and he did his 180 days of change, right? Which actually made it worse for drivers. And so it was like this, this downward spiral for drivers over the four years that I've been... Um, working in the gig economy and it's every time something changes the driver gets a short end of the stick here and you start to notice the pattern and you take this to the company right and and you try and do things um, outside of AB5 interestingly enough I was not for AB5 originally right um, I came to be for AB5 when everything else had been exhausted you know um, you may have seen it um, it is on YouTube. We tried to deliver a petition to Uber at their headquarters, you know, asking for a fair deactivation process, right? Saying if you deactivate my account and essentially burn my business to the ground, there needs to be a legitimate reason and a process 
to where I can appeal it or have a say in that, right? And they actually, their security actually, when our guy tried to walk in the building, grabbed him from behind and tackled him to the ground, threw him on the pavement, totally peaceful, we were being, um, and he was assaulted. And that's kind of like the culture here, and you realize that this is not going to change. Then you watch as this animal, Uber, grows into this super powerful organization, business, right? And you say, how do we keep this from becoming the new sweatshop of the you know, 21st century, right? Which is what they've turned it into. And I have two kids, right? And I have to take that into consideration. And I say, this is the future of work. I think that this is the future, this is a major model of how people will plug into work in the future. And I think we've seen this being applied across many different industries, Amazon. Um, these are huge companies that are finding that this, this on-demand via app um, way to plug into employment um, fits very well with certain industries. And, and, um, and I said, there's a problem here. And so I started, um, I got involved with Gig Workers Rising, and uh, after being tired of like, you send a message to the company and they send you back some generic, just total nonsense answer, very dismissive, patronizing, you know. Um, and, uh, and you go, okay, you know what, we need, we need more than this. And so, um, you know, we've seen this with, uh, kind of Uber's intent with this ballot initiative they've released. I got to look at that. And um, I did some math, personal math, based on trips that I had taken the week before I saw it, refigured those. And um, it's a 31% pay cut on top of what we're already facing. And, 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 you know, yet to the press, they say, oh, we're working with drivers to increase earnings. And it's like, no, you're working with drivers to try and force us to have to stay on the app even longer to make our money. And then to the point where as gas goes up, my income doesn't go up, you know, there's no way for me to moderate those expenses for my business. So I don't really have a business here. I'm not independent in any way, shape or form other than the fact that I turn the app on or off and that doesn't define me as independent. And so, and it's this, this squishy area that she was referring to in the old test that they were able to get away with this under, right? And so for me, AB5 and a clear set of rules to operate under, um, there's a point of pain here, you know, as he's felt with his uh, business, but, but, um, but if you can st stop this erosion that, that so many are experiencing, there's millions of people that rely on the gig economy in some aspect or another, whether it's supplemental income because, you know, a full-time job isn't enough, um, or whether they use that as their full-time plus driving 50, 60 hours a week. Um, uh, we can't just let it go. And so that's why I supported AB5 as, as um, because I saw for me in my industry that this was a needed step and clarification was desperately needed. I have a question about gig workers rising in terms of who it represents. It's not just Lyft and, and Uber and DoorDash. It's, it's gig workers of all, in all industries. Is that, yeah, is that so, correct? Yeah, so okay. it represents... Um, you know, their, their demographic is anybody that works in the gig industry and kind of under that, that uh, traditional or what we are learning now is the traditional Instacart, um, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, um, app-based work. Uh, the main focus has been on Uber and Lyft because they're kind of 
in the news all the time, usually not for a good reason, but, um, uh, and they are the largest, so, um, but yeah, it's, it's for anybody in the gig industry. And that's gigworkersrising.org. Shameless plug. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Kaim, I have a question for you. Obviously, uh, Metro Chamber businesses are members. I was wondering if you, uh, basically the, the chambers around uh, California, like the California Metro Chamber and Sacramento Metro Chamber, what your stance is? Because I felt like when I was looking at this, there was, there was the stance like, well, let's watch and see how this bill goes uh, and negotiation, which will, that's the next question. What's the Metro Chamber's official stance, if it has one on AB5, how do you see it affecting members? Sure. So in terms of official stance, we opposed AB5. And starting from that standpoint of a chamber that's a regional chamber, we cover six counties, 22 cities, about 1,400 members. And in terms of some of the issues that were being talked about, you know, initially with some of the rideshare, you know, companies, what we're looking and why we initially started taking more of a little wait and see approach was to see whether or not they actually addressed the issue, you know, and went more towards some of the other existing enforcement laws or dealing specifically with the companies that are problematic, or if they did what they're doing now in terms of AB5. And as you talked about, it's a wide expansion. It didn't just affect folks in that you know, in that sphere of the economy. And as you pointed out in terms of earlier in the uh, introduction, like freelancers having problems or companies, I should say, having problems getting, um, attracting freelancers from out of state, that's something that we're hearing from our members, that there are people who are saying, no, I don't want to work with you in California. You guys need to sort this out before I, you know, I come do this. Same time, what business owners really want is they want stability, they want certainty, they know that if I am operating by the rules, I can go from day to day, from year to year, and I can plan out my five years, my 10 years of what my expenses will be, who I need to hire, what, you know, what needs to happen. So now that's, you know, all, you know, all thrown out the window. So. Yeah, day by day. Yeah. So one of our panels that we were supposed to have here, and we're not sure what happened, uh, Caitlin Vega from the California Labor Federation. So we're still waiting for her, but while she's here, um, I'm going to open up questions to, while she's not here, I, the question that I had for her, I'm going to open up to, to all of you. It might be more for Jeff and, and Kimberly to, to answer, but I did want to get the, the stance of, you know, Labor Federation unions, you know, what their, obviously they were big supporters and proponents of AB5, what they see this doing for, you know, um, official organized groups of workers. So Kimberly, uh, Jeff, whoever wants to say, this is the stance from proponents of AB5, what, what they see as big, um, as big uh, payoffs. Okay, I will try to speak a little bit generally to what I understand, and I think, I think Jeff probably hit on, on some of it. I think there's a perception, and in some industries, in some, uh, with some types of organizations, there is a, propensity to misclassify workers as independent contractors in order to avoid some of the workers' rights, like the payroll taxes, um, unemployment insurance taxes, uh, 
paid sick leave, all, all kinds of employee benefits. So there's a perception, and I think labor probably takes this perception that AB5, by, by forcing more people out of the independent contractor model and into the employment model, will be providing more workers in the states with more rights, with more stability in their income, with um, access to things like you know healthcare and, and benefits and those types of things. So that's my perception of what they, why, they want this. Um, I think some of the things that Jeff talked about, um, it's difficult as, it can be difficult in some sectors, not all, um, to negotiate as an independent contractor with a company as big as an Uber or a Lyft. Um, and so the idea of them organizing and speaking as a common voice and being able to negotiate as a, as a collective instead of an individual, I think is what they're after. I think the, the problem that um, was hit on is a little bit that it, it's it's captured a whole lot that was probably not intended um, a whole lot of, of folks that were happy and good in their independent businesses that weren't in the same position perhaps as you and I haven't spent a lot of time studying uber and Lyft they don't hire me um, <laughs> um, but you know there there are a lot of industries that have been caught up in this um, hair salons uh, forever and ever have operated this way in a chair rental business um, the uh, I've talked truckers you know there's a lot of a lot of owner operator truckers that have spent a ton of money on their trucks who have wanted to operate their own business and there are a lot of small I'll call them mom-and-pop trucking companies who started out as independent owner operators and over time built a bigger business that cannot compete with a behemoth company that can afford to hire and have a whole staff of drivers all the time and there's a lot of people that you know so there's a lot of I think well-intentioned things about the dynamic decision, about AB5, and there's just, unfortunately, the way it came about was like overnight, and then the legislature was forced to react, and you end up with a hodgepodge of what we have here of who's got lobbyists, who can get carve-outs, and they're not exemptions. They're still, they're still subject to the old test, um, but it's just made it a little bit more difficult, and I think you're right that you know, employers in the state, businesses in the state, just want to know what law to follow. Tell me what it is, and I'll do it. Um, and, and try not to upend it on me overnight. Jeff, did you want to add to that? Yeah, so ultimately the clarity of AB5, right? Like what do the rules, right? I think when you have a clear set of rules, then you can plan and you can move forward. And so ultimately that's why I was okay with AB5, even though maybe normally I would not I would, I would be opposed to something of that structure, right, or that mass or broad um, thing. I, I did watch the, um, you know, the, the debate on the floor, uh, the final debate as they passed AB5, and, and you know, the, a lot of the industries that were kind of inadvertently swept up into the thing, and, and you know, maybe it doesn't apply to, particularly like journalists, things like that were mentioned specifically. Um, uh, you know, there's, I believe there's the intent to revisit in the upcoming legislative session and, and make sure that, that um, artists and journalists and, and some of these industries that, that traditionally, you know, um, haven't, haven't 
don't have a history of being exploited as a as a result of the independent contractor status. Um, we'll get those carve outs um, that hair salons and dog groomers and there that was one that I thought was like how did they get one you know but it was like there was there was some odd ones in there but it was you know where it made sense and not um, not that but I you know as far as like the union question I think I think it's interesting to look at this and like why people are looking to unions right and like why um, you know I think you have to go back to like the beginning of like unions themselves and like why they originally came about right it was as it was as a result of workers being exploited right workers being preyed upon workers being underpaid not listened to bad conditions at work I mean it's this is the uber recipe here um, and and so this is a reaction of just history repeating itself you know and um, and I, I say uber but I, I really mean everybody's followed uber's lead you know um, I say Uber because they're kind of at the forefront of it, but you know, and w when you take a look at that and you go, okay, you know what, there is an issue here and, and an issue that requires um, a collective voice. It requires the things that a union is kind of unique to a union and that's why those of us, myself included, that maybe um, aren't traditionally proponents of uh, of a union see the value in that in in circumstances like this that and kind of the answer we're left with so just an update on Caitlin Vega I guess there's a family emergency and she's at the hospital so she won't be here so uh, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll pray for her and we'll keep going and I, I do have some questions I'm gonna give them all to you panelists now and then uh, I'll let the audience know we can come up to the mic but just a couple more that I wanted to ask you know we're, we're alluding to these ex uh, or exclusions or groups of classifications of workers that 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 uh, will fall under AB5 won't fall under AB5 so uh, this is something I just wanted to, to clarify more about because this is something I was reading up on and had a question about how certain groups over the summer when AB5 was being discussed and debated uh, certain groups rallied to get their workers excluded so hairdressers and doctors and architects can be independent contractors uh, other groups truck drivers I guess freelance writers are not um, it sounds very arbitrary to me, but is that just how bills are, are, are made? You know, is this a common thing where people with lobbying groups that have money influence go and say, you know, get our workers excluded? Okay, but ones that don't have lobbying groups or don't have that sway, um, you know, they, they, they just fall under it. I mean, how does, how does this work, especially with this bill? Kyan, can you explain? Yeah. <laughs> Best I can, since I you know, wasn't on the floor voting for this. Um, yes, yeah, sometimes it does come down to your lobbyists getting into the room with the different legislators and making them understand the importance or the nuances of your particular industry. And if it's you know something that they can more easily relate to, then I think the easier it is for them. To be like, oh well, that you know that that makes sense. It's like you notice one of the first groups to get excluded was insurance agents. And that's because there's a member of the state legislature who was a formerly insurance agent and he was like no you can't do this to this industry this will 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 kill it you know another you know another group that got one of the early exclusions was doctors 
And that goes back to you can't have the, what's known as the corporate practice of medicine. You can't have the healthcare industry, hospitals telling doctors exactly what is going to be best for their patient. So they got excluded. But at the same time, you're right. It's like there are a lot of other folks who you would think have a pretty powerful lobby in terms of musicians, songwriters, entertainers who are excluded from this. And as they come back next year, and I'm sure that there will be, you know, as you alluded to, a cleanup bill, I'm sure that they'll be one of the first folks who get, you know, who get dealt with, or I should say, you know, handled in terms of an exclusion, because no one wants to have a song written about them. You know, it's going to be negative. <laughs> um, but, you know, in looking at this again, it is one of the problems that I've found when people do this kind of legislation is not taking their time to be more precise and to be more surgical in terms of what they have to do. This again was an expansion, so it was more of a broadsword, you know, to something where it's like you, you know, you need a knife, cut through, figure out what the issues are. The other thing too is that, you know, and it hasn't just been this year, but California has had laws on the books that enable people to organize a lot easier than any of the other 50 sta 49 states, you know, in the country. And on top of that, you know, when we do pass these laws, the regulations, which means more detailed rules, which are added to those. And on top of that, then you have enforcement for those. So, you know, we have a lot of steps that people could go through, you know, instead of kind of creating the environment where we have now, which is really what, you know, for those who are familiar with legislation, it's like the sausage making. Well, we'll throw in a little bit of this, we'll throw in a little bit of that. No, we're not gonna do this. You know, here you go. You know, so now you have folks who are in you know, a lot of chaos trying to figure out, you know, how is my industry going to survive? How is my business that I've started going to survive? Can I get the workforce that I need in order to do this? And then the, you know, last part, you know, to this is the fact that we're looking at kind of like two categories of folks when there's a third that's really affected here too, is you have the employees, you have the business owners, but then you have the business to business, you know, like relationships. And in satisfying the new tests, you know, as I'm sure she can really speak to, is it's not just like an ABC test, but there are parts in the legislation where you've got to satisfy all 12, you know, different factors in order to say, I belong over here, not, not there. So what would be an example of that, if a business-to-business -business example? Kimberly, do you have one? Well, the business-to-business the -business exemption does not apply if you, as the contractor, we'll call you, are providing your service to the clients of the business with which you contract. So it's really not an, uh, any type of helpful exclusion. It kind of still captures the, I'm a law firm and I'm going to hire a plumber. Um, they're pl providing services to me. I hire a CPA they're providing services to me, but if I hire them to provide services to my clients, that business-to-business -business relationship is not gonna fit in this test. So there's, there's all, it, the business-to-business -business carve out in here is not, is not helpful for the traditional industries that would often use independent con contract with other businesses. Um, trucking. Is a, is, a, is a probably a prime example. I'm a, I'm a, a trucking company. I am a broker. I haul concrete from a construction site. If I contract with another business, another trucking business, and whether it be a sole proprietor or otherwise, to haul that concrete for me, they're not providing that service to me. 
maybe, we don't know until it's litigated. They're providing it to the, the construction site that they're hauling it away from, which is my client. So it's really, the business to business thing is really tricky um, to make work. It's very tricky. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to see if there's anyone in the audience who has uh, questions. If you do, start lining up at the mic and we can hear what they are. Um, let us know if you have a question for specific panelists or all panelists. And while you're lining up, I do have a question, uh, another one for for all of you, but but also I guess really, uh, Anthony, I'm I'm curious to see and Kaim as well uh, for businesses um, how how AB five will affect consumers, you know, your customers and their pocketbooks. Um, I was reading how business prices may go up. It may be hard, harder to hire workers because of the ABC test. Uh, there will be pricier Uber or Lyft rides, uh, fewer meals delivered to our doors. Uh, no more packages delivered on Sundays. What, what are, what's happening now, you know, in terms of the business owner, and what do you see if AB5, you know, when it goes on the books in January 1st, what do you think will happen in terms of a, for the perspective of consumer and customer? Anthony, do you want to start? Um, well, for my industry, we, we did get carve-out, exemption, whatever term you want to use. Um, it it does it's it's rather confusing to be totally honest uh we kind of fall under the borello test we kind of have a new set of rules we have to follow where each if i rent stations each station has to have their own business license insurance and all these other rules that are that allow me to to not really build a brand right like to build a brand i have to like as kind of owner of the business right master of the ship like i gotta like really be able to tell people what to do. Like, this is what we're all doing together so that we look like a uniform front and it, it takes that all away. If you go that route, there still is the employee route. Um, but the employee route, if majority of these businesses go employee route, I mean, we operate on margins. I can't change those margins unless I raise my prices and it's not like, I mean, right. Even with just like the minimum wage increase, what it's a, it's a little over an 8% increase coming up here in January. That's, it's not a dollar more. It's an 8% increase for everything that I do. It's not a dollar for dollar thing. I can't just be like, well, my haircuts are a dollar more now because now my plumber is going to be more expensive. My, you know, getting a clipper shipped to me is more expensive. My product I buy is going to be more expensive. Everything goes up percentage wise. So I can't really cut into those margins super deep. It's not like, imagine if somebody came to you and were like, hey, you did a great job last year. We're going to pay you 8% less. You're going to do the same amount of work. You're going to make 8% less because so it's it's we have to raise our prices i mean ultimately from my point of view most of this is going to get passed along to the consumer which is probably not what they intended when they come in with these broad swords and kind of hack into stuff uh kaim and then jeff yeah i have to agree with all of his all of anthony's points there it's there is still so much uncertainty as we are talking to members and you know letting them know it's like hey look so this these are new laws that are passed these are things you have to comply with first of all you're getting folks like wait what you know i i have to do this now and so if it is not something where they can kind of change their business model to adjust and say the same but now if they're hiring folks on on a permanent basis where if they just had project or seasonal based you know like work you know, now that yes, that's going to change their pricing structure. And I don't know to what extent yet, 
you know, it's like he's given a real clear example. But as we hear from, you know, all of our different members, what they are, you know, what they're going to have to do. And Jeff? For me, the question kind of highlights the issue a lot. So the question of do we see a price increase, I say, okay, there may be a pain tolerance here, but we have to look at, like, why. The independent contractor model has been used, abused, to artificially lower prices and defer the liability onto somebody who's willing to, for whatever reason, work for less than they're worth or, or you know, the independent contractor model shouldn't be something that's being utilized as a way to, to undercut the market, but as a way to, like, fill additional need and stuff. But it's being used as kind of an exploitive model in, in a lot of ways. And I don't think we'll see the huge change in the ways where it's used appropriately and independent contractors are paid. Fairly generally speaking, where I come, where in my past in history, an independent contractor was much more expensive to hire than if you could afford to have a, a staff guy full time. So like that limited use of that independent contractor and what he says, maybe like the seasonal work, that's where that comes in and possibly p plays like um, or creates an issue um, that like structurally would need to be worked out, whether that's, you know, business to business or something just changing the structure to fall within those rules. But, you know, when you're getting that $6 Uber, that $6 Uber is on my back, you know, it's, it's undercutting my rate, you know, that, that $6 you pay that I get $3 maybe if I'm lucky, you know, um, and, and, you know, it's you paying the fair price for that ride ver versus me subsidizing through, you know, a sinking ship, um, so to say, or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, or Uber has to actually tighten its belt and operate within a budget and not throw, you know, $30, bil $30 million out for, for, for a ballot initiative that lowers the minimum wage to $5.64, you know, for drivers. Um, which that's Ken Jacobs at the Berkeley Labor Center, his assessment is what that ballot initiative essentially does. Um, that's the effective rate. Um, yeah, so. Let's see, uh, Kim, Kimberly yeah. and Anthony. <laughs> no, and I think, I think you make a fair point, Jeff. And, but the, and I think the problem that a lot of business owners are having, you know, speaking from talking to my clients on a day-to-day -day basis, is, is we did hit this with, like, this extremely broad stroke. Um, and we didn't look at where is there actually exploitation and where is there not. Um, I, you know, one of the industries that's close to me as a lawyer and who I've dealt with are court reporters. And they you by and large talk to them, they make better money independently with more flexibility and more freedom to do what they want, when they want, how they want, than they will as employees. Because there is, there is, you know, there is a downside. You, I, I'm going to have to hire you as my employee now, so I've got all the overhead that goes with, with paying you as an employee. That means I'm going to take more control. And I'm going to tell you where you have to be, when you have to be there. I'm going to tell you that you must take this job. You can't turn this job down. You have to be here at this time. You have to do X, Y, and Z. And, and that is, and so I think there's, 
we're in this place where, yes, the independent contractor versus employee classification has been abused, and it has been used to exploit people, and there are industries that have traditionally had that problem. But it, what happened with the ABC test is it came about through a court decision overnight where all the other states that have adopted this did it through legislation and did it through a careful look at and at the outset of what are we what ills are we trying to cure and how can we cure them without inadvertently hitting other industries that that don't need it that don't didn't want it um, I don't know how it's working for you Anthony I know you know some some hairstylists I've talked to made more money as renting a chair and charging what they want because they took that money home as opposed to the minimum wage. But I don't know how it's working for you. Right, yeah, I just wanted to follow up with what both of you are saying is that I think the real issue here is, yes, there's definitely some exploitation going on through the independent contractor, the Borello test and how it used to used to function. Um, but like you said, like you, in my industry, you can make more money independent than you can as an employee. And I think the dude, the, I don't think that the legislature or the judicial branches did the due diligence to figure out how this impacts everyone. I don't think they really realize what they're handling right here. I mean, they're dealing with one of the largest economies in the world without really doing any studies on how this affects anything. I mean, there's, there's industries you can lump together, but you can't just lump all independent contractors together. I mean, you got to see where the, the, the exploitation is, and that should absolutely be remedied. But you can't just take these broad swords and just hack through industry after industry. So I have a question for you, Jeff, when with gig workers rising and the other organizations that you may be talking with, when, you're, uh, when you were uh, going through getting uh, AB passed, what, what were the issues that they, did they, you know, minimum wage, obviously, and uh, benefits. Um, but I feel like there were some drivers who were interviewed that were saying, well, this makes me lose you know flexibility control over my schedule that's very important to me so in terms of i guess you know in a perfect world of av5 passed and you know it did cover drivers i guess it i'm not sure if it officially does and uber and lyft are saying well no we're not going to follow anyway and we'll just you know damn the lawsuits but what what are the what what do uh gig workers want and what will they I guess, give up. Will they give up flexi control for more benefits? Are there some who say, no, this is very important to me, having control over my schedule and all for that I'll make less money? What are the things that you're seeing in terms of trade-offs? Yeah, that's a fair question. I, you know, I've heard the statistic thrown around that it's 80% of drivers attach very high um, value to the flexibility aspect of the work. And I say, how does your system work if you take away the flexibility and 80% of your drivers, it doesn't work for them anymore. Uber is an extremely innovative company. This is what they started out as, right? They, they, they reinvented the wheel and the way we, we move around the city and stuff, and, and especially in like places like San Francisco, right? I don't think that this is too big of a hurdle for them to climb to figure out how to make flexibility work um, and real flexibility. You know, they, they, they talk about flexibility now, and here's... Here's the interesting thing. Today I was, um, I was sitting at home and I was preparing for this discussion and I get a notification on my phone, it's from Lyft, saying I needed to complete this safety training by December 15th, right? And I click on the link and I take this 20 minute safety training class and then you know, I had these other videos of, or training 
courses available, right? And then I click on the first one. It's like how to how to be a successful driver or something like that. That wasn't there when I originally signed up. I'd never seen it before. So I watch it, and this whole video was was Lyft telling drivers to be successful, you have to take this on like a business owner and not like an like uh, like an employee, you know, and you have to look at the times where you can actually make money and pay attention to the events and um, and be very dedicated and and um, and strategic about this. And I go, yeah, th th that's not flexibility. That's that's th there's an economic inflexibility to the job because the rates are so low that really you can only make money during certain times you know if there's not a need in the middle of the day right you can't just turn on the app and go make money you'll make two dollars an hour you know so it, it, the flexibility is subjective to your economic need you know and like your willingness to sit in the car idle doing nothing for free and so um you know when they threaten to take away flexibility i go well i mean your staffing levels don't change in those times when you need drivers uh, and so if, if, it, if it just causes them to have to actually manage that inventory on the road, I see that as an absolutely great thing for drivers, you know, because it's less downtime, there's less uncertainty. There's, you're not going to turn on the app and go sit out there um, and wait 45 minutes in between $2 rides, $3 rides that you uh, gross. And so, you know... I think there are solutions to this, and I think that we can innovate, and I think that the flexibility thing is they just, they, they, they found an issue that was meaningful to drivers, and in their fashion, they exploited it, and they attacked that, and it's, it's the only thing that they're saying that this thing could possibly do, you know what I mean? It's like, this is their narrative, and why is that, you know? And Uber and Lyft in their defiance, you know, this is their, <laughs> they've done that since the day they opened. I've been around... I've been driving so long, I remember they would send us emails when it was illegal to do pickups at the airport, right? And they'd send, they'd send you an email and they go, so it's not exactly totally legal, we don't have permit for you to do these pickups at the airport, you could drop off. But if you got a pickup, you know, take the stuff out of the window, get out, high five the passenger, give them a hug, act like their friend, like you're there to pick them up. And if you do get this $85 ticket or whatever will cover it, right? Because this is what Uber does. Uber breaks the law until they, until they either get what they want or until they can ch um, change the law or comply with it because it's cheaper for them to do that and pay whatever fine they get hit with than it is to just do the right thing and comply. So, and I think that's like important for people to take a look at this and kind of like, the way that they operate and say, like, am I okay with this? Because this is causing collateral damage in other industries here. And we're seeing this issue. And like, when you have these companies like Dynamax and, uh, or Dynamics and, and Uber and Lyft, and like where they're really kind of going for this nuclear option, right? And, and the spillover does affect industries that really are getting caught in the crossfire. So I hope I, I, I love this conversation, and I'm glad we're having it. Well, and, and before Kaim, uh, okay, good, we have some of the mic, because I was going to say, no question is too dumb. I've been asking plenty, so, all right, Kaim, you're up. Yeah, one other thing I wanted to bring, point to, and, you know, and 
going back to how this is just a broad expansion and a real broadsword when it's obvious that there's, you know, specific pain points in, you know, um, within industries for folks, is that one other thing that California has that other states don't is what we call PAGA, the Private Attorney General's Act. You know, where that will, you know, and I'll leave that to, to Kim to explain <laughs> okay, a little more fully, but, but there's, <laughs> but one of the problems that we see, you know, coming up for, for business owners and for our members is similar to what people have been going through with the ADA lawsuits. Basically, drive-by lawsuits demand letters. You know what? You know, we did, you know, a survey of your business. It looks like you're not in compliance with AB5, but we can solve that for you if you just pay us this amount of money. So, and there's no record within the court system of those, you know, demand letters. You know, it's like software or what have you. It's like the courts aren't, you know, aren't able to really keep track of that. But that has been a main pain point for people, for business owners, in dealing with accessibility and uh, rules. It's like what folks really want, going back to the kind of like stability and order, is that if I am, you know, it's like as a legitimate business owner, following the laws the best that I, you know, am able to do, or that I've been advised by counsel, if I do something wrong, then give me the opportunity to, you know, to make a remedy. Give me the opportunity to fix it. But what's being created here under, you know, AB5, you know, is you have this whole other dynamic, you know, folks where people are now going to get, you know, going to live in fear of a, of a lawsuit. So that was the question I was going to ask was if it's, uh, as AB5 is enforced, it's not the state, it's not uh, state agencies that are the ones that are going to sue or, they, or you know, bring a lawsuit or whatever, it's private attorneys that are also, they could sue under AB5 or whatever it's called. Is that right, Kim? All of them. It's all of them. It's um, state agencies and it's private lawyers. You're going to see it from the EDD. We're seeing a lot more EDD unemployment insurance audits. They'll come in, they'll say, give me all your 1099s. We're going to say you didn't pay payroll taxes, UI, all that. Workers' comp. Uh, workers' comp, uh, the state compensation insurance fund is doing a lot more audits now as well on independent contractors saying you don't have workers' comp insurance. And the scarier thing for my clients and for, for business owners is the class action, is the PAGA, which I won't get into. It's way too in the weeds. But it is. It's enforcement by private attorneys who will find the employee that didn't like you or the independent contractor that you won't work with anymore. And they'll bring, they'll bring a, a lawsuit, not just for themselves, but for everybody that works for you in that same classification. And they will seek penalty on top of penalty on top of penalty on top of penalty. And it becomes, uh, unfortunately, I don't mean to be alarmist, but for, for small business owners, for, you know, like Uber can eat that, right? Um, Anthony can't. Right. So it's it's a, it's but you're going to be seeing a lot more lawsuits because this is not as clear and certain as they wanted it to be. I don't think expected. Thank you. All right. How about our question at the mic? Yeah. Um, so we one of the things you guys mentioned earlier is that Uber and the other the, the gig economy gang has kind of uh, grouped up into this this 90 million dollars they put in some account there. Uh, so this is strange to me as an onlooker to this because here you have a law that is making something that was already the law the law again. <laughs> uh, additionally, 
you know, prong B of the ABC test is, says that uh, the, the contractor has to do work that is outside of the uh, realm of the hiring entity's business. Uber has passed prong B of the ABC test in other states. So why are they tripping? Why, why do they put $90 million in account to fight something that it seems like they not sure if it's going to affect them in such a, such a large way? And I have, I have a follow-up question to that, but that's, I, yeah, I'd like an answer to that one first. Though. That's part one. That's part Who one. wants to take part one? <laughs> Kimberly. Well, I, I would, what I would guess is the $90 million is coming from multiple companies. So um, that is the easy way. If we can, if they can get a ballot measure passed that takes them out, um, those ballot measures aren't, you can't get rid of them uh, except by vote. Um, and so that's easier than fighting the lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit, which is Uber and Lyft have been fighting this for, for ages in California. And they have, you're right, they've been winning under the idea that they are, a, they are not in the business of taxi service. For, right. <laughs> they are a, they're an app. We're an app-based company. We're, you know, we're, we match drivers with people that need rides. You know, we just provide the platform. Um, that's what they've been winning on. So it, I would venture to say that it's probably more cost-effective for them to get a ballot measure in than f continue to fight lawsuits in this state. Can you give a quick definition uh, or an explanation of what what the ballot measure they're they're trying to get on uh, the ballot is what it quickly does it just exempts them from AB five or is it a little, a little more to it? Can anyone? I, I think uh, that would be Jeff. Jeff. So the ballot measure, um, which they called the Protect App Based Driver and Worker Flexibility Act or something like that, right? Um, as if that should be our focus, right? Um, uh, essentially sets a minimum standard for pay, right? So uh, specifically 30 cents a mile, um, which is 28 cents below the federal deduction rate, and 120% of minimum wage in the county or city where the ride takes place, right? So. Um, that's when I say when I say that comes out to five dollars and sixty four cents. That's Ken Jacobs takes it and he's got a whole graph and he he breaks it down into how much of this is in in under reimbursed mileage, how much of this is in like I'm taking on the liability self employment tax, and so like the effective wage at the end of that is five dollars sixty four cents. And I think that that probably has more to do with why Uber is doing this ballot initiative than really trying to protect flexibility. And I think this is Uber's way of saying, I'm going to cement into law my ability to exploit the crap out of my people. And we're going to cement this into law so that allows me to do this. We're going to undo like every fight for 15, $10 an hour, $9 an hour. We're going to set it back into the 90s um, on wages and, and use that um, as a fallback and and so to me it's um, you know I you know I've come to distrust 
Uber considerably, you know, is my involvement with them. I've never found them to be like an honest company. So if they're saying that they're doing it to protect flexibility, it's probably the last thing that they're actually trying to protect by it, right? And then you got to look deeper and figure out what this thing is really doing. But um, that's the, the gist of it is basically that if, if, you if you determine when and where you drive, this is the standard it sets, that the worker de determines when and where they drive um, and for how long, they're exempt. This sets like crazy low standard to qualify for this. Part two. Part two, okay, cool. Uh, yeah, so that's actually a perfect segue because that was that's exactly what I was gonna bring up is that they, yeah, they've, what they've suggested is a, a third type of classification, which you touched on there. And, um, and, you know, correct me if this is wrong, but I, that's terrifying, right? That's, you know, just kind of the things you touched on there. And so what I'm wondering is what, you know, from a political perspective, I guess, what are the chances do you think they succeed with that? And what are the, some may be some possible repercussions in other industries following suit? Uh, by opting out of, of uh, uh, some of these worker protections and unemployment insurance and things. And I'm going to add on to your question because it was one. I was wondering, would it even make it on the ballot? I feel like there's some ballot initiatives that get a lot of attention, and then there's a deal that's made. Uh, I think like a Data Privacy Act. We were going to have a uh, policy and a pine on it about the ballot initiative, but then the, the legislature made a deal and did something. So based on your experience... Um, will it get to the ballot? If it gets to the ballot, what do you think? Uh, it's, is it too early to say uh, whether we would look at it and, and vote on yes or no? Kaim? Yeah, so yes, it will probably get to the, get to the ballot um, because you can go out and you can hire signature gatherers to go out and you know, canvas and get people to, you know, to sign and say, hey, this is what we're, we're looking for. Could you sign in support of this? Now, whether or not once it qualified as it, it actually gets there and whether or not there's a deal worked out by the legislature, you know, I, I don't know. That's something it's like we have a lot of folks, you know, in the legislature, you know, who are invested in, you know, in this bill who might try and see it's like a way to, you know, to, to mollify it. Um, last thing, though, is that the privacy ballot measure, even though they cut a deal on that, it is coming back. Yes, I know. I We're, we're booking him to speak. Well, I kind of jinxed that, but we're working on getting him to talk. Um, but uh, yeah, I was reading how Gavin Newsom, you know, got a lot of financial support when he was running from labor unions and tech. These are both involved in the ballot initiative. So it seems like it might be something where he's thinking, hmm, maybe I should step in and, and talk about this. I don't know if anyone can comment on that. Or I would, you know, always think it's better when the legislature can do their jobs and step in and actually craft, you know, a more nuanced solution. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll have to see because no one's done any polling yet. They haven't, you know, it hasn't qualified for the ballot yet. And at the same time, we are also facing a really sea change in our elections because California moved its primary up from the presidential election. Now it's no longer June. Now it's in March. And at the same time, we have changed a lot of voting laws to encourage people to vote. So now you can go out and you'll start, you know, people will start getting uh, mail-in ballots, you know, earlier. More people will start getting them. So, I mean, it's, it's still all within the realm of possibility as to whether or not this is something that actually makes it there. It's going to be interesting. 
Next question. Um, this is a question for, I guess, all the panelists. Um, how do you see the convert the actual conversion from independent contractor to employee going? Because not every independent contractor has a valid uh, employee contract with whatever company they contract with. And then secondly, um, do you think that all the folks that uh, are won't meet those standards who have to be converted to employees from independent contractor, do you think they make the jump? Is the percentage 100%? Is it lower than that? Uh, who, how much, what's the percentage of folks that actually get picked up by these companies? Kai, we'll start with you. I don't know the percentages, but I, I don't think it's going to be a high percentage, you know, that then get picked up, you know, because it, it goes to what is the actual cost of, you know, having the employee like on your staff, not just the salary, but the health care, dental, vision, uh, unemployment insurance, all of those things are going to have to be, you know, factored in. And then kind of getting to your question on the, you know, the future of work too, it's then like, you know, then what happens to these folks when they, they don't get picked up and or can no longer work as an uh, independent contractor as their own, you know, uh, business owner. Anyone else? Anthony? Uh, well, my experience was zero converted when I lost my entire staff. Um, it, we're, it, it's going to be a real low percentage. I agree with Kaim. It's it. It's just it doesn't. It I we have to run more skeleton crews. I mean, you got to remember, like, say I pay you fifteen dollars an hour. That's not fifteen dollars an hour to you. I pay an extra eighteen percent on that, and it's a percentage, so it's not a dollar for dollar increase, right? So if you may, then I raise you to twenty dollars an hour, it's still eight, uh, roughly eighteen percent that I have to pay on that for matching taxes and things like that. So you're just going to see more and more costs piled on us. So I'm going to have to try to run smaller and smaller crews to try to meet those costs. Jeff? I think in industries like mine and the gig economy that operate solely on the basis of independent contractors, right? Uber's not going anywhere. Lyft's not going anywhere. They do have that need, and there is, there's a huge market for it. I mean, this is not a small industry, and they're going to have to um, manage that staffing level. What it will force in my um, common sense is what this is going to force them to do is actually be um, efficient in that hiring process and not just flood the streets with as many drivers as humanly possible because right now that's what their that's what their best interest says to do is as many of us out there for as long as possible because they have no downtime cost and I absorb as a driver all of that and so and just touch back on your Question real quick, um, as far as the third classification that I agree is equally scary, right? Um, I hope people look at who's designing that third classification, right? You're putting the, fo the foxes engineering the hen house here. This is a bad idea. So, and I hope, you know, at the end of the day, people like dissect it and look at it for what it is really under the surface, the purpose of it. And then if this is really, if there's a need for some third classification or we need to address employment law in that, in that respect and create that, that third category, there's better people to come up with that and through studies and independent groups and, you know, things like that. There's better ways than than uh, the people with a history of cheating the system doing it. 
Kimberly, did you want to add something? I, I just want to say, one, one of the things that I've seen in industries where the workers really do want to stay independent and do not want to become employees is a move toward, a, away from the sole proprietor model and into forcing more or, or just encouraging more folks to who do want to be, maintain their own business um, to becoming LLCs or S-Corps or uh, you know limited partnerships, some formal legal entity because you know the risk gets lower when you have a true, you know, forget the carve out in here, which creates some risk of that being problematic. But when you have a true business operating to a business, by and large, the, the concern was, is this person being paid as an employee somewhere? So if I own my own company, I have my own S Corp, I'm paying myself as an employee. And so some people, so you're seeing, you know, some people willing to convert to employment status and some businesses saying, yes, we'll, we'll change our industry custom and go that way. And then you see other ones saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, you know, all my independent contractors are going to become formal business entities and we'll do it that way. Um, so that's kind of, I think, the two ways it's being done. All right, uh, two more questions to the mic, and then I'll, I'll ask the final one. Thank you, everyone. I've learned a lot, and I appreciate it. Um, one of the things that strikes me about this conversation is it kind of represents this classic American conundrum of, like, um, laborer versus employer. And we're in this point in time where that conflict is really heated right now, especially in relationship to having access to health care or, like, a living wage. So I'm just curious to know if any of you in this whole conversation personally, if your views on how healthcare is the biggest example um, is connected to our labor and our employment, if that's made you think about our system in a little bit of a different way. Same thing for um, wage and, and what the average worker gets versus what the cost of living is, especially in a state like California. So has this conversation and being involved with it and seeing all the nuances affected your personal uh, thoughts about any of that. Damn it, Courtney, you took my last question. <laughs> I'll come up with another one, but that's an excellent question. And uh, who would like to start with that one? I'll, I'll be fair. I, you know, I represent employers, and and I think what I see and what I hear listening to people like Jeff is is what I've known is out there, but it's helpful to hear. Is there are there's there <laughs> there's many sides to this. There's many different industries. There's many different ways of looking at this problem. And I think comes back to this idea of, of sort of the one size fits all solution is, is a problem. The independent class independent contract over classification model has been a problem in some industries. It's there. So AB5 dynamics in some respects doesn't change all that much. Um, but I do think that there are, there are, we have a whole new economy here, and it is filled with gig workers, and we are doing things differently. And I think what this conversation has done for me, and as well as the conversations we've been having, is saying we need to think about it in a more careful, thought-out way. Um, you know, ballot measures, you know, piecemeal solutions to everything makes it hard for everybody to operate, whether, you know, it's planning for healthcare coverage or whether it's, it's you know, planning to run your own business. Um, and I think 
hearing about you know a different perspective is always always a positive thing so i i appreciate jeff's perspective i haven't thought about uber i've always pulled my my lyft drivers um and i hear mostly mostly a lot of what you said um, but i also hear a lot of people saying the opposite thing with a lot of different industries so i think it's a problem that we all need to look at and this conversation is very helpful you know it comes to mind i was i'm I think it's Starbucks that I often read about in terms of, I'm not sure how they classify officially all their employees, but you know, they have employees working shifts, but they, I, I keep reading how they're, they're, they are working or they're uh, very good at giving healthcare, you know, education. They, they try to give benefits to their workers and flexibility. I don't know if any of you follow what they do or see that as a model uh, for companies to do if it's, if it's only feasible for a company like Starbucks, which is really big and maybe not so much for small businesses, but um, in terms of you know, what you wanna offer um, uh, workers, flexibility, benefits and so forth, and what you can offer, particularly in California, which you know, sometimes it's a hard place officially or famously known to do business, you know, what can, you know, how do you, what's the trade-offs, I guess? What's, what's the, what can what can you do and what you can't do that makes sense kind well it, part of it to your question as well is that an employer is looking for certainty they're also trying to compete to you know gain and retain the best talent whether it's you know here regionally or keeping folks you know within the state and it is not just a you know a starbucks thing where you get you know like some large company has to you know that has to deal with or try and find solutions to that you have a lot of small and medium businesses who are trying to figure out with all the other cost drivers out there what's the one thing that i can offer you know that will keep these employees here working for me and keep them you know happy for some that are our members it's offering childcare. you know so it's you know it's working within those things but it's like when you figured out how to kind of like again work within the system and then the goalposts get moved on you and you're like now i have to deal with those other additional costs you're like, where is it then, you know, kind of give for you? Anthony. I think as an employer, uh, at least myself, like I, I always want to do what's the right thing, right? Like I, I want to see my people have insurance. I think that's a, a very, very important thing. I think that a livable wage is important. I want, I want to see everybody that works for me to reach their level of success, right? I think that's the, the bigger question because... I want you to be able to, if your goal is to open your own bar, open your own, your own barbershop, whatever, I want to help you get there. It makes me feel good as a business owner and as a person to do that. But the cost of that can only be put on me. Like I keep going back to margins, like I can only afford so much. Each business owner only has so much money. And when you're talking about like what, what Jeff's going through with Uber and what I went through or what I'm yeah, what I went through, it, it, it's two totally different conversations. I only have so much budget. I have to pay my bills. I have to keep the lights on in the said business and in my own home. So I think that's, we're, we're looking at a much bigger socioeconomic conversation than, than what can we do as the free market because it's, we have a lot of laws in place that keep a lot of money in a lot of very wealthy people's pockets. All right, last question at the mic. Uh, first, you win the sock game tonight, so congratulations. Yeah, uh, yes, Kaim has great socks. I can't take my eyes off of them. So, 
So you spoke earlier about how you think uh, this trend is going to expand uh, to the greater economy. Would you be comfortable speaking on industries that it may not yet touch, like the gig economy that we may see in the next five, 10 years, or is it too early to speculate? Anthony. I think the gig economy, economy touches pretty much every industry already. I think we're gonna see it grow as we see, you know, like I spoke about uh, wealth divide, as we start to see that stuff and more of us want to take on our own financial freedoms, I think we're going to see them grow within the industries. But seriously, that's been one of the things that I've observed through being very involved in the uh, dynamics. Thank you. I did not know that. I've been on the news like 10 times for this and <laughs> all over the state. And I didn't Saying know that. Saying Dynamax, Dynamax. Yeah, Dynamax. Yeah, now I feel like an idiot. Uh, I'm just kidding. I always feel like an idiot. It's fine. Uh, but I think that's one of the big problems is they don't understand the, the, the amount of livelihoods and the amount of economy they are dealing with. It, it touches every, everything as far as I'm concerned. Jeff. Yeah, I, uh, I like the answer and I, I totally agree with it. I think that we're seeing this applied to more and more industry and a way to manage those costs of, of um, getting an employee to plug into work and being flexible and be able to be, and also as like a competitive model and being able to offer something that the convenience um, of that. And that's why it's important, highlights why it's important to have conversations like this, highlights the importance of why we need to have a careful thought out process here and to ensure that going forward that we're not dumping this Uber model on our children, right? I've got two children, 12 and 14, like not far away from the um, their own years of employment, right? And um, I want to make sure that, that, that the model is not just a way to um, simplify wage theft, you know, um, and create this like huge disparity like we have with Uber. You've got, you've got, you know, we were at their houses. I was at the Embarcadero at Google Ventures. Um, I didn't get to go party at... Um, uh, Bill Gurley's house, but or or Garrett Camps, but we had fun at uh, Google Ventures. But you know these guys, uh, you know over their course and my course of investment in the same company, their value went through the roof, right? While my value went through the floor. How does that work? You know, how does two investments in the same company? Um, why does mine become worth so much less, and theirs becomes worth like astronomically more? You know. Um, and, and making sure that that does not carry over and become the new norm and, and, and like re, um, redefining like the poverty class and like locking that into where, you know, this is an issue like across more industries and stuff and like healthcare, you know, whether or not the employer provides that independent contractor model shouldn't be used as a way to defer cost, you know, a staffing level or things like that, right? This is like what it was designed for is like to fill a hole where, you know, maybe a full-time worker didn't make sense, you know, but instead it's, it's a way to like unload the cost of something instead of you know, just because I'm an independent contractor, I still have kids, I still have healthcare needs, like that cost, even if it's passed on to me, I should be able to afford that cost and not, you know, making sub minimum wage and not having any benefits and any unemployment, any um, disability, any health insurance, 
no vacation time, no paid days off, you know, when I get sick. So, you know, this is, this is why this needs like this careful consideration, make sure that we're all working within our communities to demand this structure is responsible moving forward. Um, and working with the legislature, and like standing up and joining a group, if you're in um, one of these industries that's been like negatively impacted or something, this is why I join with Gig Workers Rising, because by myself, like there is, it's very hard to have your voice heard on an individual platform unless you get lucky, you know. But um, by a collective voice, we were able to come together and make sure that our voice was heard in the argument for AB5 and make sure that, um, that, that we were taken in consideration then moving forward as we shape this thing. All right, we're going to end it there because we're, we're a little over time. But I think obviously we haven't heard the last of AB5. And it feels like there's a lot of things we just touched on here that will be turning into topics for discussion that will uh, that we'll handle going forward. Uh, but thank you very much, panelists, for taking the time being here. Uh, it makes more sense to me now. I, I hope uh, it makes some sense for you out there as well. And uh, thank you again. And thank you, audience. And we'll wrap it up and call it a night. Thank you. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's policy in a pint conversation about the gig economy in California was held on November 12, 2019 at Fitsum Studios in Sacramento. Thanks to our panelists, Anthony Giannotti, Kim Lucia, Kaim Morton, and Jeff Perry for the great conversation. Thanks also to Fitsum Studio owners Marco Gizar for hosting this event. Special thanks as always to our volunteer extraordinaires, Rodrigo Ramirez and Nate Graham for helping make this event run smoothly. To Caleb Clark at Kickstart Audio for recording and producing the podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.